Father God, thank you that we can trust you when we don't understand you. And in the hardest places, we know you're right there with us. You feel what we feel. You hurt where we hurt. You understand. And you love us. And you walk with us. And when we can't see your hand, we can trust your heart. Every one of us, Father, needs that word today someplace. There's a burden in every one of our hearts. There's a grief in every one of our souls. There's a place someplace where today we need to be able to trust you, even when it's hard to trust you. Help us do that, I pray, by the power of your spirit, as we spend this time in your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we'll begin with this. You may have seen this story. This is Roman Catholic Bishop David G. O'Connell, Los Angeles area, beloved in the community. He, back in 1991, some of us are old enough to remember the L.A. riots of 91. Well, he was instrumental in building bridges between the police and the community and all the issues inside all of that. He uh, has especially been an advocate for the poor, advocate for, uh, for immigrants, for the disadvantaged in the community. One of the leaders said of him recently, he was the help to the helpless and the hope to the hopeless. A week ago Saturday, he was asleep in his bed when he was murdered. Last Wednesday... They charged the husband of his housekeeper in the murder. No motive as of this morning. Well, in other news, as you know, last Friday was the one-year anniversary of Russia's immoral invasion of Ukraine. You've been watching the weather out west where they're having historic snowstorms, Southern California. I mean, almost unprecedented weather disasters out there. And as of this morning, anyway, as I left to come to chapel, former President Jimmy Carter is still on hospice, has not yet passed on. His family is with him. As of this morning, his children and grandchildren are all gathered around him as well. When that news broke that he was going to discontinue medical treatment and be at home with his wife, Rosalind, uh, I wrote an article that I assumed would go out the next day about President Carter and about his faith and all the story inside that. We're still waiting to release that. He is a remarkable person. He is the longest lived U.S. president in history. I actually got to meet him when we were in Atlanta, and I talk about that in my article some. Uh, so impressive, his intellect, his passion. Don't agree with everything that he stood for and that he tried to do, but uh, a person of deep faith. And now on hospice care, uh, waiting again as of this morning uh, for the time that he, will, uh, that he will go home. Well, when you see news like that, you see an elderly person on hospice or you see a weather disaster, or you even read about wars. You're not shocked to see that. It's self-ashamed that we're not shocked, but that's just, just how it is in this fallen world, right? But when you see something like this, when you see somebody who is such a beloved servant of God, who is such a respected and admired servant leader in the family of God, and God allows him to be murdered in his sleep, it really does cause us to ask these hard questions. I mean, God's all-knowing, so he knew that was going to happen. God's all-powerful. He could stop that, you would think. He's all-loving. He would want to, and yet he doesn't. Those are the tough places. It's innocent suffering. Our grandsons, leukemia and his family and all they're going through. Your stories that you have as well. 25 years ago, now more than that, Philip Yancey wrote the book Disappointment with God. Still a bestseller 25 years later because we could all write that title. You have a place in your life if you're like any of the rest of us, where you're disappointed in God, where he hasn't done what you wanted him to do the way you wanted him to do it, where he hasn't answered your prayer as you asked, where there's a burden you're carrying, maybe there's some guilt or grief in your spirit, there's a place where 
you're struggling with God. And you came to chapel anyway, good for you. You're here to worship God, but there's stuff there. We all have them. And when it happens, it's just human nature to wonder why. Well, we've talked about this a lot over the years. I've written on this pretty widely over the years because it's such a common question. Uh, we won't go through this quick. We'll just do this very briefly now. But people all the time are wondering, if there's a good guy, why does evil exist? And we've looked at some of the answers to this. One response is that some evil exists because we live in a fallen world. This is not the way God intended it back in the Garden of Eden before the fall and sin and all of that. In God's perfect world, there wouldn't be leukemia and there wouldn't be disasters and there wouldn't be murders, but we live in a fallen world. Satan's alive and well in the world who comes to steal, kill, and destroy him. Some evil is the result of his work. Some evil results from misused human freedom. God gives us freedom so we can worship him, and when we misuse that freedom, the consequence is not God's fault but ours. If you don't study for the test, it's not the professor's fault, is the idea. God allows some evil to grow us spiritually, to use it to cause us to trust in him more and to, and to grow deeper in our spiritual lives. God uses present challenges for future good. Now we look through a glass darkly, but one day face to face, and then we'll know what right now we don't know. And you probably all have stories where you can look back and see what God was doing, but you couldn't see it at the time. And God's going to work in the future in ways that you can't see in the present. It's a fact that God feels what we feel. He shares our pain. He walks with us. And the bottom line, as I say so often, is that God redeems all he allows. God uses for greater good all that he allows or causes. I'm not saying we'll understand that in this life. I don't understand how this microphone works. I don't know why pushing this button causes those images to change up there and down here so I can see what you can see. I don't know why that works that way. I don't understand that, but I believe it. That God is redeeming for greater good all that he allows. Okay, so those are some answers that we have. Those are some approaches we have. But what when it's not enough? I knew all of that before Wells' diagnosis. And still these last two weeks we've been grieving. I knew all of that before our oldest son Ryan was diagnosed with cancer 10 years ago. But I shook my fist at God when that happened. When you know the answers as it were, and there's still not enough, what do you do? Well, here's the verse I wanted us to spend a moment on. Isaiah 118, one of my favorite verses in Scripture. As I was praying about what to talk about with you today, this was instantly in my mind, as I believe God's answer to my prayer, where God says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Let me take that apart. Hebrew words, briefly. The Hebrew word translated come means walk with me. I love Hebrew. It's a very picturesque word. Hebrew is what they call word pools. There's a number of different ways that one word can be rendered depending on the context. In this context, the word for come means to come with me, it means to come together. It means to walk along with me is the idea. If we say come now, that can almost be pejorative. Come on now, like that. It's the opposite in the Hebrew. When it says come, it, it's an invitation. Come to me. Come with me. Come along with me is the idea. The now is the urgency. Come now. God says, come now. I'm inviting you to walk with me now. Now, here's the key part. One of the places where the English doesn't do it right, where it says, come let us reason together, the Hebrew says, come let us argue it out. That's what the Hebrew says. Let us argue it out. It's a judicial term. It's used to describe an accuser and the accused arguing back and forth in court is the idea. Let's have it out. Let's argue it out. 
says, present tense, right now, the Lord. See the small capitals there? See how the L is large and then the O-R-D are small capitals? That's how in English we render the Hebrew name Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, God's personal name for himself. The name he first revealed to Moses at the burning bush, holiest name in Scripture. When the Jewish scribes were transcribing the Old Testament in Hebrew and they came to that name, Y-H-W-H, they stopped, they picked up a new pen that had never been used, they used it to write Y-H-W-H, they broke the pen, picked up the old pen and continued. That's how holy that name is. Some even changed their clothes to put on new clothes before they write that name and then change back. It means the God who was, is, and ever shall be. The great I am, we translate it. God's personal name for himself. To put all that in English, it would be like saying, I invite you to come with me now. Let's argue it out. And I'm inviting you with my own personal name. I'm signing the letter Jim. I'm signing it with my own personal name. That's what God is saying to us in Isaiah 118. I love that promise. Come walk with me now. Let's argue it out now. Let's discuss it. Let's sit down and talk, says God himself. So what does that mean in practical terms? These suggestions, four suggestions. First, value the life of the mind. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Commandment, right? Now, I missed that growing up. I kind of had this idea before I became a Christian that you can't really have faith in, and have a mind, you know? A little boy was asked what faith is. He said, it's believing what you know ain't so. Park your brain at the door. If you have enough faith, you won't have questions. If you have questions, that means you don't have enough faith. When I became a Christian at the age of 15, I still had doubts and questions and struggles. I was the kid in 10th grade Sunday school raising his hand that the teacher did not want to see raise his hand. You know, well, what about Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims? And what about science and faith? And what about evil and suffering and all the whatabouts, you know? Well, I just kind of kind of got the impression that you're just not supposed to do that. That if you have enough faith, you won't have these. I questioned my salvation for a year and a half because I had questions. And I thought if you have questions, that means you don't have faith. Found out that's categorically untrue. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind. And strength. Some of the greatest heroes of the Bible are some of the greatest intellects of the Bible. Think about Joseph, the prime minister of Egypt, whose brilliant administration saved the nation of Egypt and his own family as well. Think about Moses, the lawgiver. Think about Daniel. Think about the brilliance of Daniel, who was himself the chief advisor to the king of Persia. In the New Testament, think about Saul of Tarsus. We call him Paul the Apostle. He was the leading disciple of the leading scholar in all of first century Judaism. Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle. In contemporary terms, you think about Ben Carson, pediatric neurosurgeon, committed believer. Johns Hopkins, head of pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins. I think about Francis Collins, who was the recently retired head of the National Institutes of Health, and before that, the leader of the Human Genome Project and a very committed, passionate believer. He was a committed atheist, 
He had a friend challenge him on that. He said, you claim to be a scientist, and yet you're rejecting faith without examining the evidence. That's not scientific. Scientists don't reject a thesis they don't examine. He had a friend that rebuked him, that challenged him. You're claiming to be an atheist, but you haven't examined the evidence. That's not a good scientist. So he examined the evidence and came to Christ. Wrote a whole book about it called The Language of God. And a book after that called The Language of Life that was instrumental for me in getting into the ethics of genomics and all of that. A passionate believer and head of the National Institutes of Health. I think about Robert George, Robbie George as he goes by. You may not know him unless you live in the academic world a little bit, but he is one of the most significant professors, not just at Princeton, but in the humanities all across America and a committed evangelical believer. In my own world, in philosophy, it's Alvin Plantinga who teaches at Notre Dame and is one of the foremost philosophers in the world today. And then, of course, I can't leave out C.S. Lewis. I've warned you already, if you haven't read Mere Christianity before you get to heaven, you'll have to read it when you get there. May as well do it now, right? Well, people that know Lewis for his popular work, for the apologetic, which is defending the faith, the defenses of the faith he wrote for popular consumption after he became a Christian, don't really know the rest of Lewis. They don't know that he wrote, back in about 1955, a massive treatise on 16th century English literature excluding drama that is still the magnum opus in the field today. C.S. Lewis, by the age of 15, was studying and working in English, French, German, Italian, Latin, and Greek by the age of 15. After serving his country in World War I and being wounded in action, coming back as a war hero, he enrolls at Oxford and graduates three times with three firsts. It's like graduating summa cum laude three times from Harvard. If you wonder if God values the mind, just remember C.S. Lewis. When you're having your doubts and your questions and your struggles and you're wondering about this, please don't do what I did. Please don't think you have to leave your faith outside your mind. Please don't think that God doesn't honor that and welcome that because Isaiah 1.18 says otherwise. Value the life of the mind is my first thought. Second, be honest with God. Tell him what you think. Be honest about your doubts, your questions. He knows anyway, right? Be honest with him. You say, well, I didn't know if I could do that. I wasn't aware I could do that. Watch what Jesus says from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sinless Son of God could ask why. If he could do that and be sinless, so can you. Job's question, if a man die, shall he live again? is recorded in Scripture because it's a question we all ask. Be honest about your questions, whatever they are. And then third, take your questions about God to God. Take them to him. Accept his invitation. I love this promise. Jeremiah 33, 3. Call to me. I will answer you. I will answer you. I will tell you great and hidden things you have not known. Janet and I were talking about this last week, and she mentioned this verse in James, and I said, okay, I need to go put that in the sermon. And so I did. James 1.5, if any of you likes wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, am I promising this makes it all go away? It makes all the questions dissolve and disappear, and all the answers come instantly? Of course not. There are some questions. My little pea brain, my little finite fallen brain, can't understand the answers to. 
It's not that God's holding out. It's not that God could explain it if he just would. There are some things in the world I can't understand. I mean, I've told you before, and I say it again, that my nine-year-old granddaughter is perfect, that she is brilliant and she is perfect. I stand on that. Inherited original sin skipped her somehow. That's my position. Her, her father, my son disagrees, but he's wrong. He's just wrong about that. In fact, we're going to be out the last Sunday in March because we're going to be in Tyler because she asked us to come to Tyler because she has a storytelling competition. At the age of nine, who does storytelling competitions? I'm not proud at all, as you can tell. I'm not proud at all. But even as brilliant as she is, if I see her, if we see her out in Tyler and she says, hey, and she, we see her and she says, hey, granddad, I mastered calculus today. I'm going to assume it probably wasn't calculus. In Isaiah 55, the Lord says, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Don't you want it to be that way? If you could understand God, either he wouldn't be God or you would be God. I did a book on the seven churches of Revelation some years ago and spent a couple weeks in Turkey and our tour guide, Ersan Ersu, brilliant guy doing a master's in archaeology at the time, committed Muslim. His great struggle was the mysteries of the Christian faith. How could God be three in one? How could Jesus be fully divine and fully human? How could the Bible be divinely inspired and humanly written? Islam doesn't have any of those questions. Doesn't have any of that mystery. And I would say to him, don't you want there to be mystery about God if he's really God? The great theologian Mark Twain, you know, said if I could understand every word of the Bible, I wouldn't believe God wrote it. So there's some questions we should ask. We should keep striving to understand. Don't give up the side of glory. Keep working on it. Keep praying about it. But understand there are some things we just are too finite and fallen fully to understand. And then also understand there are things that require progressive revelation. You're going to understand tomorrow what you can't understand today. You learn to add and subtract before you learn to multiply and divide, before you learn trigonometry, before you learn calculus. And as we grow in the faith, there are just things God can't show us yet. He has to show us this so we can show us that. But don't stop. Don't, don't stop asking. Don't stop wondering. Take your questions about God to God and then last, trust the people of God with your questions about God. That verse we've been claiming, Isaiah 118, is in the collective, the plural, when it says, come let us reason together. There's a way to write that in the Hebrew that makes it all of us. Now, if he was writing it in text, and he'd say, come let y'all, come y'all, let us reason together. Y'all would be a good word in the Bible. It ought to be in the Bible more often. It makes it clearer that this is a second person plural. It's to all of us. We're to do this together. We're to do this collectively. We're the body of Christ. We're the hands and feet and eyes and ears of Jesus. And one of the best ways God has of answering the questions of God's people is with God's people. So take your questions about God to the people of God and not just the ones that happen to be walking around right now. G.K. Chesterton said it's one of the great idiocies of our age to believe the only people that matter are the ones that are walking around right now. History didn't start with us. St. Augustine, Augustine, had a lot of wisdom, that guy. 26 volumes in Mignes Patrologia Latina in tiny little print. C.S. Lewis, study, repays the investment. Ask the people of God about the questions of God and do this in community. So let me stop all that just by asking you, how is any of this relevant to you today? I doubt you knew the bishop. I doubt his death is personal for you. 
Maybe I doubt it. I wouldn't think so. But what is? I prepared all of this thinking about our grandson. What's your grandson's story? What is it that God hasn't yet done? Would you name that? Put words to it? Would you be honest about it with God? Take it to God. Take it to the people of God. Ask God to show you if there's someone he wants you to speak with, if there's a step he wants you to take, if there's a next thing he'd have you do. And trust that to him. And then as Spurgeon said, when you can't see his hand, trust his heart. Trust his heart. So I was praying about how to close all of this up, and an image came instantly to my mind. Some of you are old enough to remember this in real time. Back in 1989, there was a movie called Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, one of the great movies of all time. Sean Connery, everything with Sean Connery is, you know, we're seeing 30 times anyway, right? Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones. And we're looking for the Holy Grail here is what we're after. And toward the very end of the movie, the bad guys have shot Harrison Ford's father, Sean Connery, and now Sean Connery, or Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones, has to get the Holy Grail to save his dad. All right. And his dad's collected this Grail diary, and he's written down these three great challenges that Indiana Jones has to pass, uh, test, in order to get to the Holy Grail. Holy Grail, by tradition, is the cup that caught the blood of Jesus. That's myth. That's just a myth, but that's what the movie's built on, is this idea. Caught the blood of Jesus, and if you drink from it, you'll live forever. That's the idea. So he has to go get the cup so he can save his dad's life. And he's passed the first two tests, and now he comes to the last one. And it's the leap from the lion's head. And the cryptic language that his father has found over all the decades of studying this stuff as an historian and scholar says, by his leap of faith, he will prove his worth. And Indiana Jones comes to that. And he's at this cliff. At the edge of the cliff, and on the other side, way over there, is the cave where the Holy Grail is. And it's this chasm. And what the Grail diary tells him to do, what the record says is, it's a step of faith, a leap of faith. And by his faith, he will prove his worth. And so remember the scene. I wish I could play it for you. I used to do it back in the day. We used to actually play this clip because it's so powerful. So it's the best illustration of faith I think I've ever seen. Finally, he muscles up his courage and his faith, and he grabs his heart, and he steps out by faith, and he lands on the bridge that was always there that he couldn't see until he stepped on it. Let's pray. What does that step look like for you? It's not a leap into the dark, it's a leap into the light. What's that next step of faith the Lord is inviting you to take today? The bridge is already there. Ask him to help you. Trust him to catch you. When you can't see his hand, trust his heart. Father God, that's my prayer for my family, for our families. On this day, in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. God bless.